We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Rebecca Caden. Rebecca is a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, one of New York's most iconic VC firms. Previously, she was a managing partner at Maveron, investing in early stage consumer companies. In this interview, we discuss the rationale behind USV's partnership-driven model, the mechanics and diversity of venture strategies, whether venture automation is imminent, partnership models, generational transition, and what USV looks for in investors. Here's our conversation. Rebecca, welcome to Turpentine VC. Thank, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. USV strikes me as a firm that has set a very uh, specific way of how it wants to operate in the ecosystem. And as how the markets as, have changed, USV has stayed consistent. And we've seen lots of other firms, you know, change their AUM significantly uh, as as markets have have given them the opportunity to, and as results have. And USV, while it also had the opportunity to, so ch- chose not to do that. Is is that a fair characterization of, of USV? And, and talk about why that that's that's been the case. Yeah, I would say that's definitely a fair characterization of USV. You know, USV. I think um, one thing we talk a lot about uh, about the firm, and, and honestly about companies as well. But to start with the firm. Um, kind of what's sacred and core and what's flexible on the edges, right? And um, we're big into things that are flexible on the edges. We're not actually big into structure or rules or process, but I do think you can only be that way if you know what's core. And core to USV is a small partnership-driven model, a consensus-driven decision-making, a equal partnership that's idea-driven. Um, and so if you just start there, that model only scales to a certain amount, right? And that doesn't have infinite bandwidth. And so there's a constraining factor just there on how you want to do it based on how you want to run a partnership in a firm. Um, and then there's a belief on what maximizes returns and the stage we like to invest in. But what I, what I always say about USV is, is one thing I really like is the answer to these questions of kind of why it is, how it is, is always a mix of optimized performance and just what we enjoy. Um, and there's a big focus on, you know, why do you do it this way? Because we like to do it that way. Right. You know, and, and I think that really struck me when I first joined the firm, but it's, it's liberating in a lot of ways. And it's very true. On the first uh, episode of this podcast, we had Ben Horowitz who talked about the Andreessen platform uh, uh, approach. And then we had Kleiner who talked about, you know, much more of the craftsman approach similar to what you guys practice. When you, look out at sort of the where venture is going, do you see um, the top returners in your mind, or at least the people who make the most money, is it just going to be kind of an equal mix of, of, of sort of this platform or craft approach? Or how do, you, how do you think, as we think about as venture will evolve, will there be more um, platforms like Andreessen, like YC, et cetera, that are truly just aggregating all, all this capital? Or how do you think about that? My belief is as venture evolves, there's going to be a mix of both. And some of it relates to that. I think there are people who will always find joy and success in the ability to aggregate, right? To make it bigger, to do more. And that is a drive. That's an ambition. And as long as that's human nature, you're going to find in any industry the pressure and the momentum of doing that. So kind of divorced from returns, I think you are going to find that. We also are in an industry that rewards AUM on near-term cash. That's just a mechanic that we're all dealing with. And so also in that industry, you will also find AUM gathering. I'm not sure. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think that's, you know, one way to optimize a market. And then there's another way, right? And so I think, and I think that's great. I think this industry would be a lot less interesting if we could all just agree on one best model and everyone did the same thing. And in fact, everyone benefits from 
the variety that goes into it. And I, I think you will continue to see that. There's this profile with uh, Mark Andreessen in The New Yorker, maybe like a decade ago, and it was a long time ago. And in the profile, he he says to Ben Horowitz about AngelList, he says, what if what if we're a mammal and they're a bird or something? I can't remember the, the exact uh, analogy, but this idea that like maybe AngelList is like a different species and that A16Z will get sort of left in the dust. Um, and it was sort of this, I guess, fear that sort of, you know, venture has been this craftsman approach for so long. And despite A6ZZ's innovation, it's still like, it's still people, you know, making decisions and, you know, um, and that maybe there was going to be this sort of data driven or technology driven approach to venture. And it seems like that hasn't really panned out. Yeah, that I have, you know, a funny anecdote. I won't say what VC this is, but one time a prominent VC said to someone, you know, then it got back to us, you know, um, our firm, big platform firm, is like Beyonce, and USV is an indie band. And it was, <laughs> it was meant, obviously, as somewhat of an insult, right? Like, look yes. at that small animal yeah. in the corner, and you tell my partners that, and they're like, we love indie bands, right? Like, they're like, our whole <laughs> yeah. thing is indie bands. Do I think, um, Technology can help almost everything. Yes. Do I think data provides inputs we don't currently have? And there will be ways for it to impact decision-making in, in formats we can't currently predict. Yes. Do I think it's going to replace, particularly at early stage, the element of decision-making and conviction that is essential to an investing process? I have never been able to figure out how that could happen. Um, if anyone could, I th think it would be kind of incredible, but it's not clear to me that's possible. Yeah. I, I think the closest thing maybe perhaps to a Beyonce, like YC, if they're doing a thousand seed rounds a year, I, I wonder how many seed rounds get done a year, but it, it's probably some like non-trivial percentage of, of good companies at the same time. You know, if you're a firm like USB, you can have incredible returns and never even look at a YC company. I mean, the, the ecosystem is, is, is just so vast. So there, there, there is no firm that has ever truly like, you know, had dominant market share, um, at, at least at the, at, or it doesn't today at the, at the early stage or, or the late stage. Yeah. And I'm not really sure that's the goal. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I'm not sure that's, um, we're all competitive. I certainly am, but I, I, I just, I'm not sure that's the goal. It's not the goal in the sense that you could still crush it without it. At the same time, when we advise our startups, you know, we want them to have market share, right? We want them to to dump, have moats. We want them to, you know, sort of become monopolies to some degree, or um, in in certain in certain types of companies. And yet, when we look at our own businesses as venture capitalists, we don't do that. And, and maybe it's just a different different type of business, but it is interesting. I think it's a very core difference. Why? Right. And one is the role of human decision making in competition. I think one belief we have, right, is that the, the muscle that's going to get to excellent returns isn't market share and isn't market momentum. It is, uh, decision making, right? And, um, thought and the ability to have a hypothesis and invest behind it, um, particularly when others don't believe. And we've been in markets where that's easier and harder to do, but just practically out chasing each other is going to optimize prices. You're never going to optimize returns that way. So at some point, I believe to be, my goal is to be one of the, you know, very best venture investors of my generation. We'll see if I can come close to that, but that is certainly my goal. And I, the thing I have conviction on is it is an impossible goal to meet without making investments around ideas that are not obvious and others don't believe that out chasing a market and out momentuming it will never get you there to that extent, you know, that we want to. And that is probably different than a company. It is interesting when you're, when you're as disciplined as, as you guys are, it, it must be challenging because there are trends where people are making a lot of money doing this thing and it's just not fundamentally sound and it only works in a certain, you know, market scenario or certain, you know, certain situation. 
and at some point that that's going to 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 sort of end but it it goes on longer than you think it should and so the disciplined person is just biding their time but also it, it can't help but experiencing a little bit of fomo yeah i mean i've never met anyone who doesn't experience a little bit of fomo but i but the people i might have met who come closest to not experiencing it are my partners Again, that's another, there's a lot of ways to do this, right? There are people who very, very much believe in a solo model. And I understand why there's good arguments, but one of my best arguments for a partnership, particularly a strong partnership, like I believe ours to be, is the balance it gives you, right? Around where you excel and where others do. And particularly, I think at the stage I am at my career and and being earlier in it, it's impossible to be immune from FOMO. You you see it, you feel it. That's going around, and you and you get that urge. And then working with people who say that is not the way for us to you know optimize and create the returns we want to do. That is not the way for us to invest in my a thesis that we're excited about has been invaluable to me as a counterbalance to that kind of natural instinct. Yeah, talk about the USV partnership model or talk about perhaps, you know, you've been in other partnership models. What are the different kinds of partnership models that that you've seen and maybe the, the, the trade-offs or or pros and cons as it, as it relates to them? Yeah, I think this is another one where like, you know, obviously there's the kind of um, company building partnership model, more like an Andreessen, um, as we talked about where it can get very large, it's more structured, it kind of has to be because of the scale that it's at, it's more layered, it has to be because of the scale that it's at. There's partnership models with clear leadership, right? Look more like companies and CEOs. Someone runs the firm, they hire people, they may be partners, they may be general partners, but they don't run the firm. Maybe they have pieces of the management company. Maybe they don't, but they don't run the firm. Um, and the pro of that is that there's a decision maker on investments, but even more on firm management, right? They ultimately, people have you know, different perspectives and someone decides. And there's it's the same way why when we see a, you know, co-CEO model, we um, always, you know, have a question on it, right? Ultimately, what's the efficiency in, in decision-making? There's, there's pros to that. Um, the con is I think that it's very hard to have the power of a partnership-driven decision-making model that way um, because it, the power is imbalanced. Um, Look, we all drink our Kool-Aid around what we do. I've drank the USV Kool-Aid for sure. Small equal partnership, five to six partners, um, very idea-driven. We co-run the firm. Sometimes that's messy. We don't know who manages what. Um, We don't really know who manages who, um, you know, outside the partners in the firm. Um, You know, every time something comes up, whether that's the annual meeting or raising a new fund or throwing our CEO summit, someone's kind of got to raise their hand and say, all right, this time I'll take this. And next time you'll take that. Uh, so it's unstructured and, and sometimes that means it's messier, but it has a lot of mutual respect and it has, um, a lot of share of voice. And so I think you get the benefit of the strength of, of the ideas around the table. I think the cons are, you know, probably sometimes structure is, is helpful on certain decisions, maybe less than investment ones, but sometimes it's hard. You know, we all ran deciding really where to move our office, which some would argue is not, you know, the most efficient um, process, um, but kind of fun. Um, and uh, it's very hard to hire into. You know, we talk about that a lot. It feels like this bar is really, really high and uh, there's no um, ability to test, right? We don't have uh, junior investors that work up the rank. And so it makes it really hard. Um, And we have more limited kind of leverage and support functions of of other firms. So it heavily relies on on the partners involved. So they're trade-offs. And and you and your your career, you were at Maveron before, and you could have, you know, you joined a firm like USV, but you could have joined one like like Andreessen or other or other different kinds of firms. How about from an individual career perspective? W- you know, you've talked about what it's like to be in part. What are other factors to 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 think about when determining? Hey, do I want to rise up the ranks of a firm like 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 USV, or do I want to rise up the ranks of kind of like a or, or join at at a senior level? Um, you know, one of these much bigger platforms. What are, what are some of the other trade offs? I think that's just 
personality and, and, um, inclination. I love what USV does, right? I, I love a small partnership. I've never been a big company place. I'm not very good at politics and I, um, don't think I would enjoy them and, and with scale, they come, um, sometimes even not with scale, they come. Um, I, I, I just like a small, um, culture where it feels like kind of everyone's in sync. Um, I just think it's, it's a inclination more than a right answer by a lot. And, and mostly in investing, I think a lot about how investing is just a, uh, group of people and a pool of capital, right? Like that's all it is. And the pool of capital is a commoditized asset to some extent. Um, and so you're just, it's just who you want to do this with. And I'm sure there are, you know, a bunch of groups that I would have enjoyed. I certainly, you know, wasn't just turning down options left and right. But um, what I learned when when USV um, approached me and I got to know them is that this is a group of people that I would really enjoy doing that with. And I, the longer I do it, the more I think that that's priority one, two, three, four, five. I think I like early stage investing. I think I like Series A. I think I like low velocity, high conviction. I think all those things are true. But I think I could like other things for the right people. And I think you can't budge on the quality of people you do this with. It's famous in venture that uh, there's all these rumors about all these dysfunctional partnerships, perhaps for some of the reasons we talked about where there's no CEO sometimes and it's, it's hard to make decisions or, you know, structurally and, and VCs are very sort of, uh, you know, independent thinkers at, at times. Um, what have you seen uh, for partnerships, the difference between ones that function and are, and are dysfunctional, what's like so important to get right, either structurally or, or otherwise? I think a lot of it is just like mutual respect and trust. Um, I think at USV, people excel in different ways. Obviously, Fred has been the, you know, the, in many ways, the face of a firm, right? Let's call the spade the spade, right? He's, he's the most well-known. He's produced insane returns. Um, he has a very, um, big voice largely because of his blog. Um, and all of that's a huge asset to the firm, but internally there are things that come up that like, Albert, you know, no one is better on than Albert or pieces of index that come up and no one is more respected than John or elements of, you know, marketplaces that arise and like Andy, there's no one in the firm that wouldn't turn to Andy. And so there is a lot of shared, I think, respect and belief that everyone does have, have very strong skill sets and in some ways are proven in them. Um, I think when that's not the case, it becomes a lot harder. Um, and so I admire that a lot about the firm and it gives me a lot of drive to make sure that that's true for me too, that I'm proving it and that I'm, you know, can be that valued voice as well. And so I think it has a really good effect. Um, and I, you know, it's very, people feed off of each other. But one thing I always say about the partners that used to be, which I try to learn for, from is that they're high ambition, low anxiety. Um, I can sometimes be high ambition, somewhat high anxiety. Um, but I've learned from them that that doesn't really get you anywhere. Um, and that if you can be high ambition and low anxiety, um, you're a better partner, you're a better partner to founders. Um, you know, we're in an industry where there's a lot of other players that can feed off your anxiety and it's not that helpful. And so it's something I admire about them. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Talk about generational transition, 
right? Because the partners at USV have been doing this for, for quite a long time. And I, pre- I presume when they brought you in, in addition to your excellent uh, qualities, they probably wanted someone you know younger than them who would help carry the, the torch into the next generation. We've seen some firms do that exceptionally well uh, over the over the decades. We've seen some firms, you know, sort of lose their firm's legacies be, uh, or, or challenge firm's legacies because they didn't do it well. How do you think about what makes excellent generational transition and separates the, the firms that do it well versus those that don't? Yeah, I mean, we think about this all the time, right? So I came in when my partner, Brad, was starting to step back. And one is to do, th- one thing I've learned is very conscious decisions and communication, right? Like everyone's really upfront. Where am I? How long do I want to do this for? I might change my mind. Who knows what's going to happen? But there's a lot of communication around where everyone is. So the people who are in are all in, right? Like no one's doing this with one foot out the door. If you're in, you're in. And when you think there may be a time where you're not, you communicate that well in advance and we have a kind of plan around it. And I've learned that that clarity and communication, I think one is really, really important. And so like, my partners who are in are all in, right? So Fred and Albert and Andy and Nick and I are the kind of managing partners of the firm. And we all know we can look at each other and say, all right, we're doing this. Brad stepped back, um, which was kind of the impetus for me joining. And then in this most recent fund, my partner, John stepped back. We knew that was going to happen. Um, and so we will bring on another partner. And so it creates kind of a clear and consistent motion. I think it is really hard to do it, to bring on great partners, but we spend time on it every week, wherever we are in the hiring cycle. We talk through potential talent um, in the market every single week in our partner meeting. We have a designated slot for it. And um, because I think you have to look at talent both um, opportunistically um, and where they are in the market and then what you need, right? Because we all know how this works and at all times aren't equal. Um, particularly, we have a model that's really focused on investors, right? Different firms hire different kinds of people and have had success there. And and maybe ours will evolve, but historically we've hired investors and so, um, or brought on investors as partners. And so we, I think just dedicated time and attention to it extremely consistently as a priority is really important. And, And that's something that I've definitely stressed internally. Say more about what the, what the criteria is for, um, you know, when you say you hire investors, like what exactly are you, are you looking for there? Yeah. How, how is that perhaps different than maybe other, other firms think about, think about hiring or what makes a great, you know, kind of USV candidate in terms of, I think you were the last, you know, partner hired at USV. What is the characteristics of the next person? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think the biggest one is, um, we're looking for a thinker, right? Someone who enjoys doing this, this job thought first, who is an idea person, right? When you talk to them about markets or about categories or about trends, they have hypotheses and they have things that they're interested in and they may be dead wrong, but they're a thinker and they're comfortable sharing those ideas. Um, you know, there are people who we both know who are incredible deal chasers, right? Who just like something happens and they just know immediately and they're on top of it and they meet them first. And that that probably serves them extremely well um, and will create great success. It's not right for us, right? It's not what we're looking for. And so, I mean, we love a network. You got to be able to find the deals. All of that is true, but we need someone who's thought first, um, kind of regardless of what they've been thinking about before. We actually have more belief that venture is not about expertise, right? It's like, you don't have to be an expert in healthcare and be a healthcare investor or climate and be a climate investor or web three and be a web three investor. You have to be a thinker and a learner and have a process that's repeatable from going to, from interest and intrigue in something to perspective on it over and over again, no matter what it is. Um, and we look for people who have that. You mentioned sort of, you take part of your partner meeting to talk about this. Talk more about the anatomy of a of a partner meeting at, at USV and how it's maybe different from from past firms you worked at or, or just other firms in general. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of pieces of it that are we spend most of Monday together. I, I think that's not particularly unusual. We've actually added Thursday as well. That's a vestige of COVID when we did it as more of a checkpoint of a team, but we've kept it because we love that there are two opportunities in a week for us to touch base with each other 
on portfolio issues, firm issues, um, deal opportunities or have founders present. That's been very efficient for our deal process. So we have our primary meeting on Monday, but then we also spend time together on Thursday. Um, we start with uh, an hour that are just the partners, and then we um, do our whole investment team, which includes our analysts and our network team. And our meetings tend to have like a pretty fun and, and casual vibe. Um, they're often all in person in New York. Um, it's not by mandate, but Summer is often less so, but overall we like to be there. Um, and then we spend time, we go through cash views. That's kind of unique every week. So we talk about upcoming cash needs across every fund in our portfolio from the beginning of the firm um, so that we can project um, managing cash. Then we go through deals. So we talk about opportunities, where they are, um, at different phases of, of their life cycle and, and what might be coming up. And we take a pretty liberal view from that. We, we like people to bring things up very early. I, I met a company and I'm doing more work on it, but here are first impressions. Like you don't have to have a fully baked hypothesis. You don't have to decide it's interesting to bring it up. We want to make sure there's a lot of shared knowledge. Um, and we want our analysts and the rest of the investment team to feel very comfortable participating. And that's a good also way for them to do that. But then probably the biggest difference of other firms is we go through our entire portfolio every week. Um, sometimes uh, one of my partners, Nick, kind of built this software dashboard so we can sort it by partner, we can sort it by fund, we can sort it by category. We actually kind of like to mix it up to keep it interesting. But we talk through the whole portfolio, which is something like 135 companies um, every week. That doesn't mean we go in depth into each of them. You could be like, blah, 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 nothing, nothing. Okay, here's something. But the agreement between us is that we are all up to speed on the portfolio. So that if one of the founders who primarily works with Albert reaches out to me, I can have a conversation with them with a pretty high degree of fluency on what's going on in their business. Um, and so we, we use that opportunity to do so. And then obviously we have teams present when relevant. That's it. Yeah. Fascinating, uh, uh, overview. The, um, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned how, um, you know, you guys spend a lot of time, not just chasing the, these hot deals, but really think about the opportunities in places that other people aren't spending a ton of time on and, and that you really wanted to hone your craft as a, as an investor. And I'm curious where you've gotten the best buck for like bang for your buck in terms of spending your time? Is it talking to, to, to builders and, and sort of, you know, the Chris Dixon, what people are doing on nights and weekends? Is it, um, sort of like, how have you allocated your time most effectively across trying to find things that other people aren't seeing? And, and I know you've, you've, you've done deals and we'll get into it on, in areas that we haven't seen a ton of huge successes just yet. Um, historically, you know, education or, or mental health or not, not traditionally the hottest spaces. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we usually, we start internally. Um, we, we anchor on our thesis, right. And then we talk about the natural applications and offshoots of that thesis. And so, I mean, one thing we do as, as a team is we have biweekly Wednesday meetings and those are not about deals and they're not about our portfolio. They're just about ideas. They're about thesis development and pushing theses forward. And so generally how it works is someone grabs the time and says, pre-climate fund, Albert would grab the time and be like, I'm pushing on this climate thesis. Like I'm throwing up super raw slides, you know, like they're not polished. This is very half-baked, but I want to test ideas off of people. Or we're pushing on zero knowledge proofs, or we're pushing on uh, mental health that doesn't look like mental health care or whatever it is. And people are pushing these ideas forward and we'll grab the time and share updated thinking. And then we all know, like as companies emerge or we hear about them, who, you know, who's working on what ideas and where they might fit in and are able to kind of collectively push those ideas forward. Sometimes we do it in a more structured way and we have a kind of running Google doc of all of these ideas and categories that we think are related to the kind of core horizontal thesis we're excited about and we aggregate them and we'll grab them and we'll say, Hey, I'm going to work on, I worked on psychedelics for instance, and I did a lot of work to try to understand, um, what was going on there, what regulatory risk was, where it could intersect with a venture model, where it could intersect with software, what the right distribution model was, et cetera, and its role in mental health. And then ultimately, after 
actually quite a while for that one. It led to our investment in Journey Clinical, but that's an output of a bunch of work, you know, on the thesis. And once you start working on those, you're talking about them all the time because they're in your head, right? And you're writing about them and you're talking about them. And so you start to see those companies around it because, um, you know, that's what you're, you're focused on. And so it's, it's, it's both a structured and fluid process, if that makes sense. Yeah. So let's, um, let's go through a couple of these, uh, as, as examples, um, education, you did out school, you did, um, Sora, um, which we were also small investors in and, um, maybe you did, uh, another one that perhaps I'm missing. Yeah. I mean, we have a whole bunch. Yeah. 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 Totally. I, I just meant you, you, you personally, um, recently, but yeah, you guys do Quizlet, a bunch of, a bunch of others, I'm sure. Um, why don't you kind of trace your evolution through thinking through the opportunities in, in, in the space. Famously, it's been hard to, hard to sell to schools. Venture capitalists have been sour on education for, for, for quite a while. So how did you kind of develop conviction in the space and, and where were opportunities you weren't excited about, where opportunities you are excited about? Sure. So in education, we have been excited about a pretty narrow model, which is direct-to-learner education. So we also think it's hard to sell to schools and particularly around education um, products and so have not aspired to do so. But we do believe, we think a lot about where are there structures that are really, really broken and where the pressure is, is building enough to crack them. And our core belief is that education is one of them, right? When you look at what's going on, you see um, massive rise in cost, massive rise in debt, um, struggling outcomes out of education, and a world where product and technology has allowed us to see the benefit of personalization and options in so many different ways. And yet school for so many people and learning for so many people is a one-size-fits-all model. And so when that doesn't work, um, it leads people to say, you know, I'm not made for school or I'm not made for learning, but that's a product problem, right? Because we all know that if it was personalized and adaptable and made for them, they wouldn't feel that way. And that's really true through lifelong learning, which is what we've focused on. And so we have looked for things that are direct to learner where we believe the product and offering is going to be compelling enough that the business will follow around it and you're going to be able to change the schooling system from the outside in because we think changing it from the inside out is a very hard and long proposition of trying to capture budget that's hard to get. So that's been the really uniting factor if you think about Quizlet, OutSchool, Duolingo, Sora, Fiveable, all these businesses that are quite different in nature and product, but are united by, by this idea that you're going to change how people learn by going direct to that learner. In general, we like institutions that are big and old and we think have cracks in the seams and that there are ways to get to them that avoid as many gatekeepers as possible. That, that's a great overview. So wh- why don't we go deeper into, into, into Sora specifically and, and talk about what, what got you excited there and you know wh- wh- what could this be if it works? Yeah. I mean, I love talking about Sora because it's, it's, um, certainly an out there one. And, and I think it really starting to work and is a crazy cool company, but so Sora is, so we had spent a lot of time on that model, right? Direct to learner education. And so you wind up with out school, which is kind of extracurricular content, right? And Quizlet, which are study tools and Duolingo, which is lifelong language. And you're kind of circling this universe, but what have you not done? You haven't gone straight at it, right? Like, okay, if you really believe in this model, can you build a school, right? And can school itself be personalized and productized and affordable and really work in a different way for a much broader set of students? And that's really what Sora is trying to do, right? Sora's whole thing is a productized, personalized school. Um, and so students who go there, um, you know, learn in these formats of expeditions, which are often student-created, very personalized, um, deep dives into areas of interest. One of their core philosophies is, is interest-driven learning. You need to learn the basics. You will over time, but you learn best if you learn about the things you're interested in. Um, and over time, these set of expeditions create your journey through school. Um, and it's very self-directed. It's highly personalized and it should create much better outcomes. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't involve kind of selling into districts and, and schools. It goes directly to the learners and families to do so. Um, it's extremely hard to do that. 
right? Building a school is extremely hard. It's certainly not what is traditionally associated with venture capital, but, um, there's a lot of kids in the world and there are a lot of kids that are really unhappy with the current options. And there's increasing openness to the idea that the current options are not working and that you should seek alternatives. And if you capture a very small percentage of the kids who are currently unhappy with offerings and looking for an alternative, you can build an absolutely, you know, enormous business this way. And so, um, I haven't been, uh, up to date in a minute is like, is Sora in the homeschool market or, or it's separate from it? Um, it depends what you mean. Uh, some of the kids who start at Sora come from homeschooling backgrounds. Um, I, I don't want, most, I believe do not. They come from traditional schooling backgrounds. It works for everything. You know, we don't use homeschooling really as a term at Sora. The idea is that virtual schooling should be separated from homeschooling. There's actually a number of kids who are students at Sora who go somewhere and do it in a classroom, right? And they do it together. Um, but they're learning on their computer and they're still doing it in the personalized way. Virtual learning separates the idea that where you live is going to dictate the quality of education you have access to, whether or not you're homeschooled. Is a different kind of question. Yeah. So, so, so is, is, is a managed marketplace, whereas like it's not an Airbnb for, for homeschoolers and, and students. And I'm, I'm curious if you've looked at that model or think. It's not even really a managed marketplace. It's a full stack school. It's a credentialed school. It employs teachers. Um, it's a full stack school. Um, it graduates kids that go to great colleges um, if that's what they want to do. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big effort. Got it. Do you think an Airbnb for homeschool would work? I like, is that something that you, a model that you've looked, looked at or thought about? No, I think probably the, the closest to it might be out school, right? Which is more, it's a very much a marketplace model around classes and teachers and giving everyone access to a very, you know, broad ar array of high quality learning that they can do from anywhere, either, um, in small groups, um, synchronously or one-on-one, -on -one, that's probably the, the closest to that. I, um, like a managed marketplace for homeschooling, I think is, uh, might have other issues. Let's, let's transition into mental health. Um, so obviously, you know, ma massive, the problem is clear. The solution is, 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 is not, uh, you know, there, and there's all different types of solutions that people have tried that, that haven't exactly worked. Um, why don't you trace kind of how you navigated the, the sort of idea maze or the, in, into, or the like possible things that could have excited you and, and how you landed on, on the ones that you, the bets that you made? Yeah. I mean, we started looking at mental health because if you look at, um, you know, areas that I, we believe are at significant turning points, right. Where I think mental health, one, um, the, the kind of perception of treatment, the availability of treatment and the necessity of it. I think it's gone from kind of a problem to a full on acknowledged crisis and the expectation of access to care is totally different than it was even a few years ago. And so we, we started spending a lot of time in the space and the first era of companies in the space, including some of which we invested in and, and are really excited about, we're really all about what I call access to care, which is just bringing care online and getting it paid for, right? Care used to be hard to find. It wasn't covered by insurance. You make it easier to find, you get it covered by insurance. That's actually a very broad bucket because care is so different and you're dealing with such different patient populations, right? If you talk about... Um, patients in crisis versus more kind of mass, you know, maintenance mental care versus kids versus um, comorbidities versus Medicaid and Medicare, which is its own thing. Like there are a lot of different buckets in here. And partly because of that, that category of access to care, I think will wind up producing many multi-billion dollar companies, right? Not just a few, we're seeing these rise and probably many more than when Venture started investing in this market, we even imagined it being, right? It turns out this is a very big problem. And just that mechanic of creating access to care, one, is very hard, and two, um, is very high potential, partly because of timing um, and need and, and, and just kind of size of that market at this moment. But as we spent time on it, you know, we, we realized kind of two different things. Um, one was that 
we couldn't look at this market holistically if we just looked at access to care and not what the care itself was, right? How is care evolving? And um, there, there's a lot of different kinds of care, and most of it is therapy-oriented or um, SSRIs, right? And SSRIs were, um, you know, prescription drugs. Um, amazing development that has been transformational but is not holistic, right? Has not... There are a lot of conditions that they don't treat, and there are a lot of people they don't work for. And there hadn't been other major developments in treatment really since then. And so we looked at that, and what you find is psychedelics, right, as, as the kind of next major push that can have huge, broad impact in treating large swaths of patients with mental health. Um, and so we went very deep th there and, and ultimately invested in Journey Clinical on the belief that the right way to access psychedelics and new modalities in general is through the existing infrastructure of a market um, in a safe and trusted way by the providers, but with a lot of education and access. The other bucket was around what we quickly called mental health that, that doesn't look like mental health, right? So we know therapy, SSRIs, many psychedelics um, are going to treat patients, particularly patients currently in crisis, right, who are um, going through something that requires those treatments. Um, they often exist for periods of time. But we also know that, that healthcare hopefully is going to shift and technology can help it shift to way more proactive versus reactive, that we've been living in an extremely reactive system where we treat the sick rather than help prevent with the healthy. And if we only treat the sick with mental health, we're going to be missing a huge opportunity. And so we thought a lot about way more scalable solutions that might not traditionally look like mental health treatments, but are in fact getting at that same issue, but from a proactive perspective. So those are some of the kind of thinking uh, matrices that went on there. That's a very helpful overview. Is, is there a certain, you, you, know, you mentioned there are going to be many big winners. Is there, is there a certain sort of category of mental health company that you're waiting or product that you're waiting to exist where there's no, or waiting to be popularized where there's no massive uh, company yet? Well, yeah, I mean, for sure, right? Like, I think there's a bunch of buckets here. I think access to care, there's a lot of companies, and I think many of them will actually be successful, but it feels kind of well-trodden. Psychedelics, we have a bet we're really excited about and believe that they probably, you know, have a good chance to be the winner. Mental health that doesn't look like mental health is much broader. I think that the piece of this that we're spending more time on now is probably proactive care, right? What's more productized? What's more scalable? And how do you think about this bucket in a more proactive, preventative way versus reactive. That makes sense. Let's also segue into another space that where you made a bet, um, trucking. And and um, I'm, I'm curious because I'm assuming that that space, you hadn't spent a ton of time historically, though, though maybe you have, but so I'm looking for an example of a space where you got kind of up to speed over time. Um, but what, why don't you talk about the, the bet you made there and how you sort of you know, similarly navigated the, the idea maze or explored, hey, what, what's the opportunity here in, in this broader space? Yeah, actually, the, the, the path that um, got us to Smart Hop and trucking was, was less trucking itself, though it turns out once you deep dive there, it's super, super interesting, and more around the SMB economy itself. Right. And, and the, and we've made several bets there. Team shares is one. There are others on the idea that the SMB economy, um, controls a huge part of our, um, you know, um, of America's economy and is extremely important to it and is often overlooked, right? In favor of the aggregators or the big business. But it's an important thing and we want to protect it and, and kind of find ways for it to thrive. And we like networks. Like when in doubt, if you can empower a network of nodes or aggregate it into a centralized vehicle, we love the idea of empowering a network of nodes. And what's been going on in trucking is there have been a lot of uh, trucking is a, is a world of SMBs, right? There are big players in it for sure, but trucking's fascinating. It's made up dominantly of small, either individuals or small companies who like it because it gives them a lot of control. And it's the backbone of our economy. It's constantly moving everything we need. Um, and they don't want to be aggregated because the independence is a core part of the market. But a lot of the options that have emerged as the industry's gotten harder is to aggregate them together under a carrier. 
And so what we were looking for is something that empowers them to grow their own businesses and give them the benefits as if they were aggregated, but allowing them to be the individual nodes in the network. And that's what SmartHop was doing. So we, we kind of got at it a different way. So you've made bets in the fertility space before, I believe, uh, uh, Modern Fertility. Is that, is that right? Yes. Talk about what led you to the, to that deal or kind of more broadly with infertility, where you thought about where was the, where was the, where was the opportunity? What, what, what's, what's left unsolved? Yeah. The thing that, yeah. So, um, I had invested in, in modern fertility at Maveron and then again at USV and, and Afton there built a, an awesome business that she, um, and the team wound up selling to row. And that really gave us insight into the opportunity to build dominant brands in fertility right? That there isn't a go-to for women who are going through this and that are looking for a place to turn for deeper information community. That's kind of, you know, one bucket of opportunity. But it, it made me think a lot about that the bucket I was most interested in was how software was going to improve outcomes. And that where I think the, the biggest business opportunity is outside of you know biotech, making the drugs better, making them generic, uh, making, you know, all, all the things you could invest in from a, uh, you know, scientific lens, which is not what we do, but I believe has a ton of opportunity in it was how could you improve the outcomes of patients going through IVF? Because you're going to drive down cost by improving the outcomes. Um, and, uh, that really led us to life because that's exactly what it's doing, right? It's using, um, powerful models, um, and AI to, um, you know, improve the outcomes, looking at moments of human decision-making of which there are many in a process and where they could be augmented by strong data from universal data sets that are going to make those decisions better. Um, and, and that's been really, really exciting to watch. And by the way, it's not unique to fertility, right? It's not unique to fertility. It's actually an opportunity we're excited about across medicine, right? Where are there moments of individual decision-making that could be augmented by better data sets? Fascinating. So yeah, this just gives a handful of sort of the different sectors you guys cover as a, as a general firm. Is the, um, if USV was starting again in 2023, sort of imagine, you know, Fred, um, you know, at the age at when he started USV, but he's in 2023 market. Um, do you think it would look pretty similar to, to how it looked at, at 23 market, not just macro, but given all the players on the board, um, all, all the firms that already exist today, do you think it would look pretty similar or do you think there might be substance, something substantively different based on what founders want, maybe based on what LPs want, um, et, et cetera? It's a really good question. I've never thought about that question before, but I actually think it would look very similar. I think it would be, I think at heart, it's a small collection of partners who have shared hypotheses and ideas and process, um, doing a, a, a strategy that should work, um, you know, between markets and there'll be some markets where it looks more obvious in and some markets where it looks less obvious in, but if you stick to it, should be effective. Um, we do talk about how some of the strategies of you of you know how USB grew would be different. Um, you know, he always says like if you started blogging now, it'd be much harder, right? There's way more noise, there's way more voices. It's way harder to uh, get the kind of platform than it was then, just because of the quantity. Um, certainly, New York's in a much different place than it was then from an ecosystem perspective, but from a strategy. And feel perspective, I think it would be quite similar. We've, we've talked about how you guys think about investing, but you guys have also, you know, experimented with different kinds of product offerings at the firm or, you know, um, sort of leaned into events or certain kinds of network activities. What have you learned from various experiments about how to add value separate from the GPs in terms of, you know, building this institution? And as you've seen the rest of other firms really lean into various services. What are, what are things you guys have experimented with that you think have, have, have worked or want to experiment with or say, say a bit more about that? Yeah, we don't do, we're not the heaviest there, right? We run a, a pretty lean team, but our, the way we look at it is less offering services ourselves and more we invest in networks. We believe in the power of networks and, our, and we should enable our portfolio to act as a network. And so the best thing we can do is effectively manage the marketplace, right? Um, 
So make sure that knowledge sharing, resource sharing is happening effectively and efficiently across the portfolio, because in that portfolio is a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of access and a wealth of resources far greater than we or anyone we could hire has. And if we can activate that and make sure that they can really efficiently help each other, you know, that will be really, really effective and it will get stronger as we grow. And so that's really the focus of our you know, of us and our network team. It's interesting. So I, I have some emerging manager friends who admire the success of places like USV and Benchmark. And they're like, hey, we're we're going to do the same thing. We're going to structure our partnership the same way. We're going to structure our firm the same way. We're going to structure our brand the same way. And the thing they run into is like USV and Benchmark already exist. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to just be, a, you know, strictly worse. You want to be like different on some, on some axis. And so I'm, I'm curious as you, um, are friends with a number of other, you know, um, firms or newer firms who really, you know, follow the, the model and the, and are inspired by the examples that you guys have set, um, what advice you, you, you might have to them given, given what you just talked about? Yeah, I kind of reject that, that kind of foundation because I just don't think venture firms succeed by doing something different. Do you know what I mean? Or that the, that the product is really different. It goes back to a collection of people in a pool of capital. There's a strategy and the strategy matters, but ultimately it's going to be, do founders want to work with you? And can you make better decisions in what you invest in and how you manage that portfolio and how you construct the portfolio? And that's not about, are you doing something with a different brand or, you know, can you tell the story a different way? It's like, who you are and and what you've learned and how you're going to decide things at the moments that matter. So I, I just think ultimately that is going to make a way outsized impact on uh, any firm versus kind of the, the setup. Totally. Ultimately, if you are picking companies that other great firms aren't picking and you can, and you can then do them at reasonable prices and they become successful, you'll become massively successful. But if you are, competing with other and you and you manage your liquidity well you know how to get out of them um you know how to help them you can construct a portfolio with the right way like there's a lot of decision points in managing a firm but i'm not sure it's about differentiation from a structural perspective that makes sense um and perhaps that uh that emphasis on, uh, on, on consistency on, you know, chop wood, carry water on, uh, you know, it's, it's an execution game, um, is, uh, is a great place to wrap. Rebecca, thanks so much for sharing your, your wisdom and your lessons with, uh, with us at Turpentine VC. Thank you for having me. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.